0: Oh, gracious Father, you forgive us of our sins. Through the blood of Christ, you have brought us into the family of God. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Heavenly Father, you know the beginning and the end of all things. You have control over all things. You sit on your throne, as you tell us, and you rule the nations. And so, momentary afflictions, shortages, panic, Concerns, weather disasters—these things, Father, are merely parts of a longer plan. Moments on a path. They have real impact. We acknowledge, we acknowledge the, the hurt. We understand the, the needs. We know that people are affected, and these things are not insignificant. But Father, because Your Word gives us an eternal perspective, we can keep these things in their proper place and. They do not trouble our hearts unless we allow them. They do not shake our confidence unless we take our eyes off you and off your word. So, Father, correct us in these things. Bring us back to a strength that recognizes your sovereignty, your love, your mercy, that you have overcome the world and we with it by our faith in Christ. That these things are passing, that you are forever. These things, Father, will give us hope and care. For us through these trials. And we know, Father, you are with us. We pray for that comfort for those who are seeking it and that assurance for those who are worried. And we thank you, Father, for your word, for what it teaches, for what it helps us understand, for how it encourages our hearts, for how it corrects our behavior, for all that it does, and the renewing of our minds so that we may please you in our lives. Let it be that way for us this morning, Father. Let it renew, let it work our hearts to being more obedient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start a new division in the book of Ezekiel today. The storyline is going to change in some dramatic ways from what we've been studying. I think that's probably a, a bit of relief for us at this point, after studying seven chapters of God, pronouncing woe and judgment. In the previous section, we saw Ezekiel commissioned. We saw him called as a prophet in the midst of the exiles. We saw how the Lord asked him to communicate through both pantomime and also through words that the Lord had some difficult things coming for Israel. But this morning we start a new section. It's four chapters long, so we're talking about 8, 9, 10, 11. And in these four chapters, you're going to see the Lord explaining through Ezekiel why and how the glory of the Lord departs from His temple. Chapters 8 and 9, the first half of this section, will give us why the Lord's glory must depart, and then the second half, 10 and 11, will explain how it departs, because it goes out in stages. He doesn't just poof, disappear. It's very interesting, actually. I find this whole account fascinating. I hope I'm not the only one. And I think it's fascinating for several reasons. But especially because of what it illustrates. It illustrates the Lord's patience. More than his judgment, it's really focused on how long-suffering the Lord is willing to be with his children. And friends, that has to be a word of encouragement for us, for though we don't repeat exactly what Israel did, we still have our issues, we still have our needs, and we serve a God who is long-suffering. Also, I find this section interesting because it foreshadows what the Lord is ultimately going to do for Israel, and that's a fact I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we continue in our study through these chapters, especially these early chapters, because the early chapters of Ezekiel are bad news. By and large, they're all bad news, but the back end of this book is all good news. And if you can bear up with me through the bad news as God has presented it, the reward in that is to see how the Lord is going to bring all these circumstances to good for those He loves and have called according to His purpose, including the nation of Israel. The Lord is going to send His people away for a time so that He can bring them back again in glory. So keep that in the back of your mind. Let's get started this morning. Chapter 8, it begins with God explaining to Ezekiel why the glory of God is going to depart from His temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, As I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there like the appearance which I saw in the plain. And he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary. But yet you will see still greater abominations. So we've got to set the scene a little here. This is the second time we know that Ezekiel has had an audience with the glory of God. The prophet dates... This event, very precisely, as we mentioned at the outset of our study, he has a tendency to date the events of his prophecy very precisely all the way along. And because it's so precise, it helps us understand the setting a little better. He says that this happened in the sixth year of the fifth day of the sixth month. Now remember, these dates he's giving are all in relation to the original date that he gives in chapter 1. So if you were to go back and look, you'd see that chapter 1 is dated as the fifth month of the fifth year. Fifth year of what? Well, of the exile, he tells us in chapter 1. So this would mean that the events that we're looking at here are happening with just 10 days remaining in Ezekiel's 14-month duty of laying on his side. You remember this? So he got a call from God to lay on his side in front of that little that little display of Jerusalem in siege. He was told to lay there for a total of 430 days, which is 14 months. So for 14 months he was to lay on his side. Well, that started with the date that we were given in chapter 1. Well, if you count that out, you find yourself here now on the sixth year, fifth day of the sixth month. That's just 10 days shy of 14 months. So he's almost at the end of lying on his side. But as we see here, he's not alone. Now he says, Ezekiel says he had the elders of Judah assembled around him. Now those elders are the ruling men of Israel. They're kind of a government in exile over those who are now in Babylon. So what we're seeing here, very interestingly, is that all the antics that God had Ezekiel engage in over these 14 months, they've served their purpose. They've gained the attention of Israel's leaders. And we don't know what they were saying to him. We're not sure what was going on in the moment. But you can understand what they might have been thinking. They might be wondering, what is this? Why have you been doing this? Why have you gone nuts? Is this from God? Well, so, what is it saying to us? I mean, we can see that they're attentive. Although they're attentive, I don't think it's fair to conclude that they're persuaded. We shouldn't go too far and assume that they've been convicted about their sinful ways or that they're very interested in the message. But that's all the Lord needed. He wasn't expecting to convert them. He just wanted their attention because he has more to say to these elders. So in this moment, as he's laying there with elders around, he says, the hand of the Lord falls upon him again. Ezekiel has what is essentially another of these moments, like he had the first time, in which he finds himself in the presence of the glory of God. Now this is something beyond anything we can appreciate. It's only really understandable to the limits of what Ezekiel provides to us. What he tells us is, That in the midst of this moment of glory, as God grabs him, he sees a likeness of a man. And he uses the word likeness because it's not literally a man. And that's self-evident. Look at the characteristics here. He's got fire for a lower body, glowing metal for an upper body. That's clearly not a man. He has something that looks like a hand, Ezekiel says. The point is, it has become such in its appearance that it could be recognized by a man as something like a man. It doesn't look like the the creature in the movie Alien. you know. It doesn't come at you in a way that's so odd that it frightens. Rather, it comes in a form that is somewhat comforting. But on the other hand, God doesn't want Ezekiel to misunderstand it. This is not truly a man. This is something greater. What God is showing Ezekiel here, something we discussed in chapter 1, is the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory of God is not God. What it is, is a physical manifestation of the invisible God. You might compare it to the way a flag flutters in the wind. You can't see wind. It's invisible. But you can see the movement of a flag, something physical. And the movement of that flag tells you that the wind is present in the moment. Well, similarly, you cannot see God. The Bible says He is invisible. No man has ever seen Him. But when God wants to manifest Himself to show you that He is present in this place, in a tangible sense, He does it through the Shekinah glory, something that is physical, representing Him, but it is not Him. No more than the flag is the wind, is this man, God. But yet it tells you God is present. Rabbinical teaching from times past in Jewish tradition, rabbinical teaching has always struggled with this notion that God could manifest Himself in a human form to mankind. In fact, one famous rabbi taught that Jews were not allowed to even reflect on Ezekiel 8, verse 2. Couldn't even think about it. Because it suggested something offensive to them, that God could take the form of man. Naturally then, the Pharisees were especially offended when Jesus said that He was equal with the Father. That's part of why they reacted so negatively to it, because it contradicted their own sense of what God could do. But what the rabbis failed to appreciate was that those Old Testament manifestations, like the one we're seeing here, were not God Himself. And therefore, they do not diminish God. God was merely manifesting Himself as a cloud, or as a burning bush, or as lightning, or as a dove, in order to communicate His presence, not His form... And he was using methods or features of creation that could be understood and appreciated, that weren't going to drive us away from him, but of course they're not equal to him. And by the way, I should add, if God can manifest himself using those lesser members of creation, well then certainly he can take the form of a likeness of man, the highest order of his creation, can he not? So having appeared to Ezekiel, now what the Lord does is direct Ezekiel's attention back to Jerusalem. Remember, he's hundreds of miles from Jerusalem right now, so this is being done through a vision. It says in verse 3 that the Lord catches hold of Ezekiel by a lock of his hair and then lifts him up between earth and heaven. That that means in the air, basically, between the stars of heaven and the earth. And it transports him. But he says it's not a literal transportation because Ezekiel says he was brought to Jerusalem in visions of God. You notice that in verse 3? So you might say this, the Lord took hold of Ezekiel's attention, directed his attention. That moment is a perfect illustration of how the Holy Spirit works for us, how his ministry works. He's the the part of the Godhead who is assigned to do certain things within God's economy. He works in the hearts and in the minds of mankind to direct our attention to the things of God. He's just doing it in a very tangible way here for Ezekiel, but that's consistent. Spiritually speaking, the Spirit takes hold of us and gives us something to consider, directs our attention. And He does it in a series of steps. It begins with our relationship with Christ. He calls us into that relationship. He gifts us with spiritual gifts that we use to serve the Lord. And He seals us for our day of redemption. Then it moves to Him presenting us the revelation of God in the Word of God. He convicts us of our sin. Then He goes from there to encouraging us and empowering us so that our hearts will move into obedience with what we learn strengthening us for a walk with Christ. All of those facets of the Spirit working in us are to the same effect. They take our head off of what's in this world and off of uh, what we focus on, downwardly speaking, moves it up and toward God and directs our attention in a healthy way. The last time we saw the Spirit working with Ezekiel it's when he commissioned him. It's when he empowered him and equipped him for this mission. Now, he's giving him the next step, which is as revealer of mysteries. He's going to show Ezekiel some things Ezekiel never could have known except that God would reveal it to him. What are these things that he needs to know? Well, the Spirit takes him, it says, to the north gate of the inner court of the temple in Jerusalem. I'd encourage you at some point if you just go to the web and Google Solomon's temple. And if you haven't seen it or don't know exactly what it looks like, it's really helpful to get a picture in your mind. And you can get some good ideas from just doing a little research. That temple built by Solomon centuries earlier was a very ornate building. It sat on top of Mount Moriah in Jerusalem where the the temple mount is. And the building itself, the temple itself, was not all that big. It was a tall rectangular structure. It had a single entrance. The entrance of the temple was supposed to face east. And then around that building, you had a courtyard fenced in by a wall. And that courtyard had various entry points, gates, that let you come into the courtyard. Now, about 60 years prior to Israel's captivity, to the scene that we see here, there was an evil king ruling in Judah. His name was Manasseh. And when Manasseh ruled, about 60 years prior to this moment, he decided at a point that he was going to put a pagan idol directly in front of the northern entrance to the temple the northern entrance that led into the court you read this in second kings 21 i'll just read a couple of verses second kings 21 1 and 2 manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in jerusalem and his mother's name was hephzeba he did evil in the sight of the lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the lord dispossessed before the sons of israel verse 7 He set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So, in the house that God said he would put his name on forever, Manasseh said, Well, I'll tell you what, let's just put an Asherah right in front of the northern gate. Notice that as the Lord shows Ezekiel this idol, he refers to it as the idol of jealousy. He doesn't name it any other way. It's the idol of jealousy. What he means is, that idol has provoked the Lord to jealousy for Israel's worship. Jealousy seems like an odd word, doesn't it? When you apply it to God, to call Him jealous. Because we commonly use that word jealousy to describe sinful human emotions, right? When you hear it describing God, you feel like, "Eh, God's not sinful, how can He be jealous? Forgetting, of course, that God Himself describes Himself as jealous. Remember Exodus 20? Verse 3, "...you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of that which is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." So that means we have to rethink our definitions when we think of the word jealousy, because jealousy can be a sinful response or it can be a righteous response. Coveting for something that you do not have entitlement to, that is a sinful kind of jealousy. But desiring for something you have every right to possess, that is righteous jealousy. So when a man covets another man's wife, that is sinful jealousy. But when that woman's husband reacts to the other man's advances in jealousy, well, that is righteous jealousy. The point is the feeling is righteous. He has every right to his wife and he has every right to defend her against another man. So the Lord says He's jealous, in that righteous sense, for His people. And friends, the Lord has every reason to expect us to give Him our affections, our worship, our praise, our faithfulness. Because friends, He's given us everything. God has loved us before we knew Him. He has pledged Himself to us in the blood of His Son, and He gave us a down payment in His own spirit. He has said He has lifted us up with Christ in the heavenly, and He has assured us a part in Christ's inheritance, not by our own work, but only by His. He's done all of this, He says, to the praise of His own glory. So He has every reason to ask and expect our devotion and our faithfulness in return. Not because we're earning anything He's already given to us, but it's the, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, it is our spiritual service of worship. It is what we owe Him. It's what He expects, and He's jealous for it. And friends, in a day to come, when we're glorified and we're in the Lord's presence, I assure you this, it will never dawn on us as we stand before him to give our attention to anyone or anything else. You'll never even imagine doing so. You'll be captivated by his glory. You're going to experience his love in a new and better way, his wisdom, his power. And all of that will drive you into a heartfelt level of worship in joy that we have only begun to understand here. The Bible describes you and me at a point in Revelation. We're actually described. Do you know you're in the Bible? I can point you out. You're in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, the Bible describes us, you and I, as we're engaged in worship. So if you want to see a preview of how you're going to do this, here's what you're told in verse 8 of Revelation 4. There's other things going on around the throne. And he says, John says, The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, here's where we come in, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created." John goes on to describe that scene further in chapter 4 and 5, and at a point later he talks about there being myriads, uncountable numbers of those worshipping with those elders, the church in other words. This scene you're going to experience personally in a day to come. You're reading this as if it's something beyond your comprehension, and the irony is you're there. And you're going to be doing these things, saying these things, believing in these things. You're going to be enjoying these things. That scene is a future event. You're going to have full-throated worship one day. I like to think about that anytime I'm not really into the worship at a given service sometime here or elsewhere. You know, when you're sort of wandering in your thoughts and you're thinking, Oh, they've been singing for a while. Yeah, okay, I should kick in. Where are we again? There's not going to be that problem in heaven. No distractions, no hesitation, no worries over who's watching. No temptations to worship anyone or anything else. It's just now we struggle. When we stray from an honest and devoted worship of God, it's going to be because we've put something between us and Him. It's inevitable. Some person, some desire, some pursuit. We're giving our greater attention to that thing in our heart than we are to serving and pleasing the Lord. That can be in the moment of worship when your mind wanders. It can be in the way you live your life and that things divert your attention away from serving God. Whatever it is, you see a tangible example of it here with Manasseh. He put literally in the path of the worshipers an idol. Those worshippers came seeking the true God, but before they could find Him in the temple, they would have to pass by this false god standing in their way at the entrance. That idol became their distraction, their diversion, so that they began to see that as who deserved their worship rather than the God, the unseen, invisible God that had no statue. So it offended the living God, and he says he will not share his glory with anyone. You notice in verse 4, Ezekiel specifically says the glory of God was in this place. He's still there in the midst of this idolatry. What Ezekiel is referring to again is the Shekinah glory of God in the way that he occupied the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And I'm assuming you may know a little of this already. I don't plan to get into it today as much, but... This is one of the greatest honors Israel has ever known, that God actually permitted His Shekinah glory to dwell with people, Israel, in this temple. And the word itself tells you what it's all about. Shekinah, the word in Hebrew for Shekinah, it's similar in its root to the phrase, I will dwell. He's saying, I'm dwelling with you. I'm putting something of me with you in this visible glory. It came into the tabernacle originally when Israel was in the desert with Moses. Later, as Solomon built the physical temple, the building made out of stone, then the glory of God came and descended into the Holy of Holies. You can read about that in 1 Kings 8. It says there in 1 Kings 8.12 that as Solomon sees this, he says, The Lord has said that He would dwell in the thick cloud, but I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. That's a bit optimistic on Solomon's part. Yes, God will dwell forever among His people, but He wasn't going to dwell in that building forever. Now, at this point in history... Now where we are in Ezekiel, we now have 340 years, uninterrupted years, of God's glory dwelling among men. Even more remarkable, he has done this in his sanctuary despite one abomination after another. I believe the Lord is pointing out the fact through Ezekiel that his presence is in the temple right now because he wants to make the point of how long-suffering he has been with his people. The Lord is long-suffering. He's been sitting in the temple as he promised despite problem after problem with Israel. And it should give us great comfort in knowing that He does not give up on us, He does not walk away from us because we have a bad day or a bad week or a bad year. He doesn't take His presence in our lives for granted. But we can. God wasn't going to give up on Israel. But he's preparing to withdraw his presence for a time. Now we're going to talk more about this as we get into chapters 10 and 11. About the spiritual significance of the fact that though God is not forsaking his people, he is withdrawing his presence from his people. We need to understand what that says about the relationship we have with God in the midst of sin. We'll get back to that. But for now, the Lord wants Ezekiel to simply understand the full extent of what God has been dealing with so that as he acts, there is no doubt about why. He gives Ezekiel five examples. We can move through these relatively quickly. They're easy to understand. Five reasons why he's going to depart. Five sins that exemplify what Israel's been doing all along. And it begins with his idol standing in the northern gate. Now, in the way Israel used the temple, the north gate was the one through which animals were brought in for sacrifice. This is the one you came in if you were coming specifically to sacrifice an animal in the court. So what Manasseh did was set up an idol in such a fashion that it defiles the temple court, but more than that, it defiles the sacrifices that are being led in through that door. Certainly Ezekiel would have known this. It's been 60 years since this thing is set up, and it's still there. So Ezekiel must have known before he was exiled that there was this thing sitting next to the gate of the temple, and I have to suspect he disapproved of it. Now he's learning how much the Lord despised it too. The Lord says that this idol is forcing him to be far from his sanctuary, it says. Because what the Bible tells us elsewhere is that the Lord cannot coexist with idolatry. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 6.16. He says, Of what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as the Lord said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Now, in Israel's day, God occupied a stone temple. He did not occupy it forever. Obviously, He is leaving it now. That's what we're learning. But that doesn't mean He's forsaking His people. Now, we, on the other hand, we don't have a stone temple, and as most of you should know, The temple of God in this age is your body. Collectively, our bodies. The body of Christ. The Lord dwells in that temple, so to speak, by means of His Spirit. And the Bible is very clear that the Spirit of God will never leave us nor forsake us. We are not in jeopardy of the Lord departing from us in the way that He does this stone temple. And it's, it's all the difference in the world between a stone building and a human body. That's why the Lord has made a special dispensation for us in this age that no matter how faithless we may be, He yet will remain faithful because He cannot deny Himself. That is to say, He cannot turn His back on that which He has made part of Himself. But nonetheless, God says He cannot coexist with idols. So how is it that he should respond to those who are determined into idol worship despite having the presence of the Lord in their temple? That's a question we want to answer in coming weeks because it's meaningful, right? We all have that concern. But in this case, it's enough that he would leave. And he says as he ends this first example, he says, you think this is bad? You'll see worse. Takes us to example number 2, verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in, and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things, with all the idols of the house of Israel, were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were seventy elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan, standing among them each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will still see greater abominations which they are committing. So it seems, though, as if there was some secret entrance carved out in the wall, maybe hidden in such a way that you had to push past a stone, or we're not sure exactly what this is, very skull and dagger kind of thing, you know? But there was some kind of secret entrance through the wall into the inner court to some room within the temple compound, an entrance known only to a few, but God reveals to Ezekiel how to find it. And as he follows through and in, he witnesses a crowd of men worshiping every creeping and detestable thing carved on the walls of the rooms. And these aren't just any pagan gods. They are gods in the form of creatures that are declared unclean in the law. What they're likely looking at are Egyptian gods, because the gods of Egypt were uniquely patterned after such creatures they had frogs they had flies they had creeping things as their gods which was not common from other cultures and even worse ezekiel says the worshipers are being led in this worship by israel's 70 elders the ruling class of the nation is leading some secret society of evil operating in a dark room in the temple compound it sounds like a great movie script doesn't it only it's real they had this secret satanic cult operating inside the temple. And they told themselves, the Lord doesn't know we're in here. He's forsaken the land. He's gone. He's asleep. He, who knows where he is? And you've heard me say this before, that when you feel that God isn't around, it isn't because God moved away. It's because you did. Which is what's happened here. And this second abomination, God says, is greater than the first because it involved worship of Egyptian gods by Israel's Leaders, Remember, the nation was formed originally by God, by a great exodus coming out of Egypt, and in the plagues that God brought upon Egypt to get them out, He judges, specifically, Egyptian gods in the forms of those plagues. Flies, frogs, and the water, and things that Egypt had held up as gods. The Lord systematically showed that they had no power. So the irony is, You had Israel formed by a work of God to show himself greater than the very things that they have now turned to worship again. And even worse, it's the leaders leading this process of worship and doing it in the temple that is devoted to the Holy God. But there is more. He says there's still worse. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. In what God is doing, he's moving Ezekiel a little closer into the heart of the temple with each turn. The first time he said, I want you to look at what's going on outside the wall. And then on the next turn, he says, let me take you through the wall and show you what they're doing on the inside of the wall. Now he's taking them through the gate proper and into the courtyard and looking back on the gate from the inside. So the front side of the gate had the, the Asherah, Idol On the backside as you come in, what do they find? He, he says he finds women weeping over Tammuz. Tammuz is an ancient pagan god. He goes by a lot of different names, depending on which culture you go look at. He's, he's common in the ancient culture. You might heard of one of his names, a little more common name. In the Greek pantheon of gods, Tammuz is called Adonis. In all cases, it was the same kind of god. Worship of Tammuz was essentially worship of nature. It's something of what we would call New Age today. Worshipping trees and nature and plants and life force and whatever other ways we name it. That was the worship of Tammuz. He was the god of spring vegetation, originally, and therefore he was known as the dying and rising god in the same way that spring vegetation dies in the fall, only to come back again in the spring. So you see the irony here, don't you? They're worshiping a pagan god whose claim was the very one of God in the form of Christ. He's sort of a pre-incarnate antichrist. And this abomination is worse than the previous idolatry because of that feature, but also because worship of Tammuz involved use of prostitutes in the temple. That was part of how you celebrated with this God. And when you hear these women in the temple on the ground weeping, they wept as a display to invite men to comfort them, to take them and comfort them through worship to this God. I mean, it's completely perverse. And clearly that perversion is a worse form of idolatry comparatively to what we saw going on outside the gate when people merely bowed to a statue. One's bad enough. This one's worse. But there are worse abominations. Verse 16. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. Here again, a little background will help us understand why this is so wrong. He takes Ezekiel now from having come in the court, he takes him further toward the temple building itself. Again, if you don't know the structure very well, it will help you later to go look at some of the pictures that you can find. But the temple building itself was the centerpiece, of course, of this whole compound. So he's come through the gate, sees women weeping. Now the Lord walks him closer to the door that led you into the holy place, into the actual temple building. And as he stands, it says, between the altar and the threshold to that door, in that space between, he sees some men. Now this area that he's describing here, where it says between the porch and the altar, that particular area of the temple compound was restricted to priests only. So that would tell us that these men that he's describing are priests. They have to be, or they couldn't be there. And the priests are standing, it says, with their backs to that door that leads into the temple, facing east, which is where the sun rises, as you know. And they're prostrate, which means they are worshipping a rising sun. Moreover, the Bible tells us David, the King, King David, established that there could be 24 men serving as priests at any given time. But Ezekiel sees 25, which means that the high priest of Israel is engaged with them. So you have the high priest of Israel and the 24 priests beginning their day of service in the temple by a communal worshiping of the sun together. It's kind of like their morning conference before they start their day of work. Now you see a further progression of sin. Look at how it's moved, not just physically and in terms of the location, but look how it's moved in progression of sin. You see first the common people, then you see the leaders, then you see the priests who serve in the temple, and now you have the high priest even. And the Lord has said already from the outset, any one of these sins was enough to justify his departure. Right? He started with the first one saying, why are they putting up this idol that makes me not be able to live in my sanctuary? But he didn't stop there. He waited patiently, self-evidently, patiently. But now the time has come for the Lord's glory to depart from the temple. And that's what he announces in verse 17. He said to me, Do you see this, Son of Man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. The Lord asks rhetorically, are these offenses too light to deserve my response? And of course, the obvious answer is, no, they are not too light. They are very severe. They are well deserving of a response, which is what the Lord will do. But when you think about it, what kind of response do they deserve? What do you think God would be just in doing at this point? Don't they deserve complete destruction? Would we really hold anything against God? I mean, could we really indict God, if he had chosen at this point, to wipe Israel off the map? To say, you're done. I'm not going to have anything more to do with you. He could have done that at least in theory. And if he had done that, he would have been warranted in doing so. There's no doubt. The Lord even says, they are putting the twig to their nose. Now that's a colloquialism. We don't have it in our culture, so it doesn't make sense to us. But in their day, that was an obscene gesture. It basically represented mocking someone in a very obscene way. Israel is mocking God by what they're doing. It's as if they're daring Him to do something about it. To use my earlier example of jealousy, when I talked about a man coveting another man's wife. Can you imagine if the man took that woman to bed in the husband's own bed? Wouldn't that just add insult to injury? That's what they've done. They've not just cheated on God, they cheated on God in his own bedroom, so to speak, in the temple. Bringing such sin right to the doorstep of the temple and then daring God to do something about it. So in light of that arrogance, I think it's fair to say God would have been perfectly right to wipe them out. But he doesn't do that despite what replacement theology would try to teach you by the way what god does instead is though he acts in wrath and judgment he says he's going to do that right there verse 18 we read it yet he does not wipe out his people he preserves a remnant he sends some into exile he keeps giving them prophets i mean that's why ezekiel's talking to them now he hasn't shut off conversation he's going to bring them back In fact, in future chapters of this book, as I said, the good stuff comes at the end, we're going to see the Lord promising not only to preserve Israel, but to bring them into glory. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Ezekiel. He wrote to the same group of people in the same time in history about the same circumstances. He just did it from Jerusalem while Ezekiel does it from Babylon. And you know this verse I'm going to read. This is Jeremiah talking to this same group of people about these same circumstances. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. What kind of God is so loving and patient and merciful that He could speak to Israel in that way, even in the midst of their sin? Now, he's not saying these words after they've come back to their senses, torn down the idols, and apologized. He's saying these words through Jeremiah in the very midst of all of that abomination. He's the same God we serve. The same God is ready to forgive us and grant us another chance, a chance to please Him, I mean, even on those days when we've fallen short. He's the same God who's faithful to us, even when we're faithless. This doesn't excuse their behavior, but what it reminds us of is that God is powerful enough to bring a justice without crushing those He loves. That's what he's doing for Israel. He's going to bring about a justice that's well-deserved, but it's a justice that is measured and has a long view with an eye toward redemption. Just as he has done through his own son. He crushed his own son with an eye toward our redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your patience. I I thank you, Father, for the encouragement that knows your mercy and understands your grace. I thank you, Father, that on our worst day, you're no farther away from us than on our best day. I thank you, Father, that on the days we feel discouraged and we find no reason for hope, our hope is assured in Christ. That when you feel far away, Father, you are still very close. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us your spirit. I thank you, Father, for the promises that you have made to us in Christ's blood. For if they were rooted in anything of us, they would be no good to us at all. We would have no faith in them, and we shouldn't. But because they're rooted in your, your son's finished work, his sinless life, his death on the cross, because those things have happened and cannot be undone, they are the assurance that you will be faithful to us. For when you look upon us in all our sin, you see Christ. And when you think of us, Father, you think of us from having known us before the foundations of the, of the world. You have a plan for us that's been started before we knew you and will be completed in a day to come. And that kind of wisdom and power and sovereignty, Father, can trump any life circumstance that may get in the way of our obedience or cause us to be frustrated or scared. Thank you, Father, for that. It's undeserved. It's sometimes unappreciated, but it's never in doubt. And Father, as we go back to a time of communion this morning, remembering what your Son had to do to bring us this assurance, I pray, Father, we would take encouragement from that as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.